This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by FreshBooks, the absurdly easy-to-use cloud accounting software. FreshBooks saves you more time by taking care of all of the stupid, boring accounting stuff that you keep putting off like I keep putting off. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial for listeners of Oppo. Just go to freshbooks.com oppo and please enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by Endy. It is the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Yes, buying a Canadian mattress is very cool, but the most important thing is that it gives you the best possible sleep. Endy offers both coolness and sleep. For $50 off any Endy mattress, including the king size, which I highly recommend, go to endy.ca slash oppo and enter the promo code OPPO. From Canada land, this is oppo. On this week's show, Ottawa political operative Justin Ling helps us dive into the budget. Lucky us. There's going to be so many numbers, Jen. Oh, I love numbers. Why are you coming at me with numbers, man? Math is hard. And meanwhile, resident oil-humping nutjob Jen Gerson will walk us through the Alberta election, which is going to be a really terrifying preview of the shit show we can expect in the next federal election in October. And I can't wait. Yay! (laughs) And because it's my favorite topic, we will be checking up on the SNC scandal to find out just how wrong Justin was from last week. Somewhat. So I have officially been a freelancer for more than a year now. Yay! And one of the biggest burdens that I have as a freelancer is not having enough time in the day, week, or month to actually grow my business slash do more work. It always seems like the day-to-day tasks of having my own business take up way too much time. And the work I really want to do, like, you know, giving Justin Hal on Twitter and doing more podcasts, gets eaten up by stupid tasks like accounting and invoicing. Accounting tasks are such a time waster. They're not super difficult or hard, but sorting through my receipts and big spreadsheets, it takes so much time away from my business. That's where FreshBooks comes in. On average, FreshBooks accounting software saves users like me up to 192 hours a year because it makes taking care of my books so much easier. Opening up a FreshBooks account will save you more time now when you have to file your taxes. And we're offering a 30-day free trial of FreshBooks to all of our listeners. Be smart like me. Go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. So Justin, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Is it Easter? Mm, yeah, it's coming up, but that's not what I was talking about. <laughs> Easter is my favorite time of the year. Why? That's such a weird time of the year to be have your favorite, like Christmas, <laughs> Halloween, all better than Easter. Easter is ham season, and ham's not the best of the three major roasts. Oh, no, I love some ham. Yeah, ham season is the best season. No, it's okay, it's roast beef, turkey, then ham. That's how that goes. Oh, no, you have that all wrong. Well, it wouldn't be the first time. Anyway, the writ has (laughs) dropped in Alberta. Oh, yeah, that's fine, too. (laughs) It's going to be such a great election. I'm so looking forward to it for so many reasons, but largely because Alberta is Canada's weirdest and least predictable province. I have heard of it before. Alberta is something I've been meaning to look into. But as I understand it, it's already a foregone conclusion. Jason Kenney is going to be Supreme Ayatollah of Alberta, and that's a done deal, right? Oh, oh, but is it? So firstly, a couple of things I would start out with. Yes, the polling numbers do show that Jason Kenney's UCP has a very commanding lead over the NDP. 
And I would also say that some of the other indicators that we're seeing suggest that it's going to be very, very hard for the NDP to shake that. The number one issue for most Albertans right now is the economy. People are shit scared about their jobs. They're terrified about, you know, the way oil and gas is treated versus the rest of Canada. There's a huge amount of concern about the lack of pipeline capacity that we're managing to build and an overall sense that the rest of the country just wants to fuck us over. It actually seems to me like, you know, when you're pulling to Alberta and people are saying, you know, what's the number one issue? Oh, it's it's the economy. It's it's actually a genuine fear over the economy instead of the you know normal election polls where you ask, what's the biggest issue? People go, I don't know. The economy oh, no, no. Or yeah, no, no. Health care, I guess. You're right. It's and that's exactly it. Unlike normal. Oh, it's the economy, I guess. People are actually horrified by the state of the economy in Alberta right now. But I mean, we have really high unemployment rates right now. And for a province that has a median age of like 36, having some of the highest unemployment rates in Canada is a really, really bad sign. And people genuinely are very scared. Like they don't know what's going to happen in this province, whether or not, you know, this province can continue high rates of growth or whether or not they've just got to move back home. So the anger and the discontent is very intense and very real. And when people feel that way, especially about the economy, the first temptation is always to blame it on the existing government, kick those guys out. And when the existing government is, of course, a bunch of left-wing socialist NDPs who feel very you know, foreign to the fabric of this province's self-identity as a conservative province, that anger only gets amplified. So that is the overwhelming, overarching, quote-unquote, narrative. And please feel free to insert a pukey sound every time I use the word narrative in this <laughs> in this episode because I hate that a word. A what sound? Narrative. But No, it, no, no. A what sound? A puking sound. Every time I a use the word narrative, sound. just ah, ah, just like that. Just go ah, narrative, narrative. It's a cliche term. There might be nothing that the NDP can do to trump that overall feeling and sensation. And certainly Jason Kenney and the policies that they've laid out so far are meant to play to exactly that level of fear and anger. They're hitting Albertans really hard with promises that there's going to be a big referendum to uh, renegotiate equalization. They're promising a a war room to sort of bring in more better PR for the oil and gas industry. You know, they're going hard on this idea that, you know, Jason Kenney is going to be the guy to nail Ottawa to the floor. Can I suggest that, you know, I'm actually surprised at how, I won't say good, I will say not like, cataclysmically bad the NDP are doing and how sort of a lackluster Jason Kenney has been sort of out of the gate. Obviously, the UCP, United Conservative Party, seemed well-placed to win this election. They're, what, some 20 points ahead. Um, but if you would ask me, you know, five years ago, how do you figure a Jason Kenney United Conservative Party would do against the NDP in Alberta? I would probably say, you know, just round up to 100% of the vote at that point, you know. But in the end, this is actually proving to be a tighter race than many expected. And and there are some people out there saying, you know, Rachel Notley has a shot to maybe cling on or at the very least prove to be a relatively robust opposition, which is it's shocking. I mean, I really did anticipate that after four years, especially given the state of the Alberta economy, especially considering some of the, the you know, the fights that Rachel Notley has been in, and especially given the fact that Jason Kenney has managed to marry the Wild Rose and PC party, which many people thought was impossible. I'm surprised it's as tight as it is, even if it's not all that tight. (laughs) I don't rule Rachel Notley out in this election at all. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because Alberta's really fucking weird and volatile. Sorry, I'm we've been chastised for using too many F-bombs before, but it really fucking is. Oh, fuck that. I mean, well, the last couple of elections, we've just seen wild, wild, unpredictable swings of the electorate 
even right up to like the last days before people actually cast their ballots. So elections in this province can turn on an absolute dime. And I do not rule that out happening here. Secondly, the other thing I would say is, you know, Rachel Notley's NDP has not run some kind of crazy radical leftist government. There are certainly some things and some policy points that I would disagree with. But, you know, as a center center right person, actually analyzing the policies put forward is there anything that I would point to there that I'd be like, that's what fucked over the economy? No. Like, we all know that ultimately what fucked over our economy in Alberta was the decline in the price of oil and gas and the subsequent lack of pipeline capacity that, you know, is frankly beyond provincial jurisdiction and provincial control. So am I at some point going to write a column being like, here's what I think the NDP's done wrong in the last four years? Yes, I can write that column. But I can't, like, point to anything specific and say, this is all the NDP's fault, nor can I point to anything that UCP is proposing and say, this is going to fix it. Like nothing's bringing back 2005. And I think that that's just a reality that Albertans are really struggling to come to terms with. And I think that's interesting because Rachel Notley has played this very kind of constructive federalism game where she's, you know, rather than slamming her fist on the table and, you know, throwing chairs at the prime minister has has been much more conciliatory. And, you know, where the Trudeau government and the Rachel Notley government diverge, they diverge. But she's, you know, tried to play quite nice with the federal government. In and terms that's of, now biting um, her in the butt because now Jason is coming up with this fuck the federal government policy, right? We're going to can the carbon tax. We're going to do all these sorts of things. And even though I have my doubts that any of this will actually serve any of Albertans' interests in the long run, goddamn if Albertans don't eat it up. I'm curious to see how well that actually test drives in the last couple of days of the campaign because I don't know that people get really sold over on that. I mean, yeah, some people like the firm hand at the wheel, you know, they want a premier who's going to go to Ottawa and scream in the face of the prime minister or, you know, at least the prime minister's doorman. But I don't know that people actually have that much faith in that stupid style of politics because we know that screaming bloody murder doesn't do all that much good. What's more, I think, you know, Rachel Notley can point to some things that she's actually done that have been, you know, constructive and maybe a little bit a little bit outside the box, you know, she bought a bunch of rail cars and are repurposing them to actually move oil to markets. You know, it's it's something that is immediately beneficial as opposed to just, you know, long term stress shouting. Well, I mean, those rail cars, I don't think come online till 2020. And I think there's even been some criticism that she's overpaid for them. So, I mean, I'm skeptical about sort of chop down statist solutions to some of the problems that Alberta is facing. So, I mean, as I said, that's where I would say my criticisms of the NDP move toward. But, you know, if you look at the history in Alberta, as I said, no politician ever lost points by scoring shots at Ottawa. And not even, I would say it's not even been just Jason Kenney who's done that, especially in the last few months as we've moved closer to this election. Rachel Notley's taken a harder stance toward Trudeau as well, and it's played very, very well. I mean, people most liked Rachel Notley when she was shitting on BC and shutting down the wine trade between Alberta and BC. And they most liked her when she was finally hitting back against Trudeau and his government's apparent inactivity on the on the pipeline file. So that plays well to this crowd. And I do think that there is a longstanding century old sense that central Canada is, if not out to get Alberta explicitly, then certainly it doesn't act in the West's interests. And, you know, there's a there's a prevailing sense that this province really needs a strong aggressive white knight type of provincial they leader man. in order to counterbalance the overwhelming power of Ontario and Quebec. And that is that is a long standing narrative that goes back a hundred years in this province. 
that's all well and good. I mean, it seems pretty clear, you know, Senator's Paribus, nothing else changing. Jason Kenny is going to become premier of Alberta and, you know, the dark days will, will finally fall upon us. But it's not a done deal. Like we said at the beginning, you know, the, the poll numbers are not as strong as they should be for Jason Kenny. And there is this lingering feeling that Rachel Notley may yet pull this one off. Um, and of course, there's a couple of things that, you know, people have been pointing to as evidence that maybe the UCP might yet fuck this up. What are they? Okay, so I think the most prevalent one right now that we're starting to see is the emergence of the bozo eruption. Wait for it. Narrative. Blah. Blah. The bozo eruption narrative. We have seen a bunch of UCP candidates get disqualified. Um, this has been going on for a couple months, but it's really ramped up in the last week or so. But they've been disqualified over, you know, private Facebook messages that were leaked that were alleging, you know, sympathies with white nationalism. We've seen one candidate get criticized for saying in a sermon, basically quoting Corinthians in a sermon saying that, you know, a woman must submit to her husband. The most, I think the most damaging of these bozo eruptions actually just happened yesterday. Eva Kariakos just recently kind of stepped down because apparently someone was threatening to expose these really awful public social media posts that she had posted. You know, she had shared a story accusing you know, migrants coming into Germany of being rape fugees. Oh, um, God, you know, that's she, some terrible wordplay. Yeah, horrible. And, well, I believe me, the wordplay is not the least of my concerns with it. No, 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 no. No, of course. <laughs> the Islamophobia is really bad. But I just do want to underline how bad that wordplay is. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, she made some really out there comments about, you know, being against gender neutral washrooms because she didn't want her children being exposed to perversions and things like that. And then when she got called on it, she was just like, I'm a free speecher and, you know, we need to be able to have these debates. And I'm just like, as a private citizen lady, you can have all the debates you yeah. want, but I don't want she you to near- quote, tired of being bullied. Um, you know what? No okay. one bullied you into running for office. Nobody bullied you into sharing those dumb fuck beliefs on your public social media pages. And ain't nobody bullied you into resigning. You resigned yourself. So you know what? Fuck off. And here's what I would say about all this as well, is that some of the previous quote-unquote bozo eruptions that the UCP has faced up until this date have been a bit thin or icky or ambiguous when you started to look into the details, and I don't really want to get into the details of them. But this is one of these clear cases where the party should have actually done its vetting. She actually should have been spotted way, way sooner. And I'm not so sure that this candidate should have gotten to this stage in the game for the party's own sake. So I think this is a, a much more cut and dried, more straightforward example of a bozo eruption. And to be honest with you, from what I'm hearing, there are probably more to come. So that's one of the major issues that the UCP is definitely facing. But let me throw this out at you, though. You know, in 2012, when Danielle Smith seemed set to romp to victory in Alberta with uh, the Wild Rose Alliance, she was totally knocked on her butt thanks to a bunch of her, you know, whack job candidates saying wild and stupid things. And many like, of them not nearly as bad as this, by the way, I would add. Yeah, I mean, some of them some of them a bit worse, you know, the ones that said that all the gays are going to a lake of fire, and that became the tagline of the whole election. You know, she ended up uh, squandering her lead and, you know, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory because of, you know, all of the weirdos she recruited to run from her. And going back to the weirdness of Alberta politics, like she was about to yeah. win until like two days before the election when the electorate started exactly. looking at this stuff and being like, whoa, wait a minute, buddy. But here's the thing, though, is that all those narratives, all those, you know, revelations and all those wild candidates, they all kind 
kind of spoke to, I think, an undercurrent of suspicion that Daniel Smith was herself a little bit kooky, you know, that she was at the very least not, you know, skilled enough a political operator to, you know, get all of the cats herded in her own party and that she couldn't really be trusted with government. I think that ultimately, you know, oppo research and, and leaks like this work when they undermine a belief that people already have about you or even just an inkling or a suspicion they have about you. I don't know that's going to work so well against Jason Kenney. I'm not sure that the average voter in Alberta thinks to themselves, that Jason Kenney, he's a real crazy person. You know, well, I don't okay, so think... for two, two points, because one, you just got one thing very wrong there. The issue but... wasn't that Daniel Smith herself was kooky. That wasn't the prevailing concern. The issue definitely was that there was a lot of fear and concern about the Wild Rose Party writ large and whether or not there was a bunch of wingnuts inside of it. The Lake of Fire and the Bozo eruptions in 2012 confirmed that, but what really screwed Daniel Smith wasn't the fact that she had some kooky candidates. It was that she refused to fire or disqualify those kooky candidates. Uh, also fair. So that was actually one of the things. And Jason Kenney has definitely learned that lesson. You know, usually when, when these sorts of stories come to light, these candidates appear to be gone within, you know, 24 hours. So he seems to have learned that lesson. But I think one of the problems that Jason Kenney is facing, and this is a narrative that's definitely coming up, narrative that is that, you know, people are deeply ambivalent and concerned about what his actual beliefs are, whether or not they're much, much more extreme than where the average Albertan is. And I think the NDP has actually played very elegantly to this. They've done some really extensive documentaries into Jason Kenney's past, his history on gay rights issues, for example, and it really doesn't look very good. So I think that the, one of the underlying concerns about the UCP is, is kind of the same as the Wild Rose, whether or not some of the candidates that they have running really shouldn't be near power. I think that the, the Bozo eruption stuff plays to that fear and that concern. But that's not even really the only issue that Jason Kenney's facing. Well, if I could hazard a guess, I would say, you know, his his weakest, um, you know, the weakest part of his public persona is this idea that he's, you know, opportunistic, that he's a, you know, a craven political operator, that, you know, he's only out to get power. You know, he claimed to be from Calgary, but was basically living in Ottawa, you know, helping run the Harper government. And now he's coming back to Alberta to, to take the helm as the rightful heir. And of course, you know, you just wrote a big thing that underscored that with a really fine point about just the wild craziness that went on in his leadership or in the leadership race for the UCP. Do we want me to explain the kamikaze candidates yeah, or stuff? Yeah. Okay, so for those people, the kamikaze, because you're right, this plays to the idea that Jason Kenney is not like a nice, fair, above board political operator and that in fact, he's surrounded himself with all of the same entitled, creepy, borderline corrupt, progressive conservative old boys who ran the old PC party into the ground and eventually cemented the rise of the NDP in 2015. And I'll try and explain it as briefly and simply as I can, but it's now been shown beyond a reasonable doubt, if you have any common sense at all, that essentially when Jason Kenney was running for the leadership of the United Conservative Party against his main rival, Brian Jean, who was the former leader of the Wild Rose Party, what he and his team did is that they reached out to a third candidate by the name of Jeff Calloway to essentially run a kamikaze or a stalking horse campaign to undercut Brian Jean. So the sole purpose of this person being in this race was to allow Jason Kenney to stay above the fray and talk about how grand his vision was. And then meanwhile, Jeff Calloway and Brian Jean were left duking it out on the debate floor. We got a couple of media organizations, including myself, got a big document dump that showed that basically the Callaway team and the Kenny team were just working hand in glove, so to speak. 
you know, they were sharing debate points, they were sharing speeches, they were sharing communication strategies. There's even some evidence to show that the Jason Kenney campaign was creating like video attack ads and visual attack ads that were aimed at Brian Dean, ostensibly on behalf of Jeff Calloway. So like, it was all pretty dodgy. We kind of, this, this story had been bubbling out over a couple of months, but we finally got like really solid evidence that this is what was actually going on. And of course, there's a suspicious check that maybe suggests that there was money changing hands. Yeah. Now let's be real clear. I don't have any evidence that Jason Kenney was involved in the money side of this operation. But of course, in order to run to be the leadership of the UCP, all of the candidates needed to come up with a $57,000 check to hand over to the party. And they needed to come up with this check by like September of 2017. So what this whistleblower came to me with was evidence, including bank documents, that showed that the Jeff Calloway campaign received a transfer of $60,000 from a corporate entity that was then basically redistributed through fake donors back into his campaign account. And that was how he paid his entry fee. And needless to say, that ain't no good. (laughs) That might not be super duper legal. That's not super duper legal. In fact, uh, Alberta has pretty strict donation laws where any individual is limited to a $4,000 donation in any given year to any combination of leadership, constituency, party, candidates. So you can only give a maximum of $4,000 per year. So, you know, this one dude handing over $60,000 in one go to a leadership campaign. Uh, yeah, there's no there's no law that, that allows that to happen. And there's certainly no law that allows you to donate money under your own name that hasn't actually come from you. That's also not super legal. So it was a pretty good scoop and I'm very proud of it. But it definitely shows that the money side of this Callaway campaign was not on the up and up. And uh, I think it goes to show that there's still a real chance that uh, Jason Kenney eh, might fuck this up. Yeah, I don't think we can totally rule out the possibility that Jason Kenney and the UCP are going to fuck this up. So far, to be honest with you, I haven't been super impressed by the platform ideas that Jason Kenney and the UCP have put out so far. To me, it just comes across as a mandate for endless political warfare with the rest of Canada. Like that's, it, it almost goes back to his CTF days. It's like, it's all just stunts, right? Like it's gimmicks and stunts where he's going to rile up Albertans, make them feel like someone's fighting in their corner with political drama that does no good and will just end in pointless headlines and column fodder for me to talk about how stupid it all is. Well, I mean, that sounds good for you. And I've always said we're well overdue for a gimmicky civil war. The real joy of this election is that, honestly, it's a trial run for what's going to happen in fall. You use the word joy, and I don't think you know what that means. No, it's true. I'm, I'm an Alberta conservative, so I mean, like I could possibly understand the word joy in any contextual sense. I think you're right. I think the next federal election, I think it's going to be stupider than this, though. I think the next federal election is just going to be an unending sequence of liberal oppo research targeting conservative candidates, and then the conservatives just screaming their head off with you know just a completely vapid platform. And uh, fuck knows who's actually going to win, but... I know we're all going to be losers. One thing to keep in mind is that uh, Rachel Notley is much, much stronger than Justin Trudeau. And Jason Kenney is much, much stronger than Andrew Scheer. And whatever we manage to come up with in Alberta will be replicated in stupider fashion in the federal level in a couple of months. (laughs) 
This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Greek lamb tacos with tzatziki and green olives. Wow, that sounds better than anything I would come up with. And that's because I didn't come up with it. HelloFresh does all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping so that you can focus on enjoying a healthier you and a happier family. You'll get top-rated seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door in a fancy box every week. You don't have to go grocery shopping, you don't have to go planning, and you don't have to waste any food. It's actually pretty great. There are three plans to choose from, pronto, veggie, and family, with an option to switch between them when your tastes change. You can discover world cuisines, rapid recipes ready in 30 minutes or less, and a flexitarian-friendly menu, along with so much more. Do you know what I really love about these meal kits? They come with these really fantastic, colorful recipe cards that I actually keep and store. Then when I want to do meal planning at another time, I can just go through all of my recipe cards, decide whether or not there's anything there I want to replicate, and I can actually just go grocery shopping for it again. We're offering a promotion that gives you half off your first box of HelloFresh. If you want to give it a shot, go to hellofresh.ca slash OPPO50 and enter OPPO. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jen, I'd like you to just uh, if you follow me, if you don't mind. Where? Just, Where are we going? Just, just right this way. Just come on. Um, I'm super suspicious. Yep, just, I don't like you. No, just down this. Where alleyway. are you taking me? No, and we're gonna take a right here. Uh, and okay, just just through this door. No, Jen. No, Jen. Welcome. No. welcome to the room where we keep all of the numbers. I don't want to go to where they keep the numbers. I don't like the numbers. Now, maybe you didn't hear, but last week, Jen, there was a budget. It was usually mentioned in the context of the liberals are trying to get people to pay attention to their budget instead of SNC Lavalin, because apparently we can only focus on one thing at a time. Yes, because that's what they did. That's why they moved the Justice Committee meeting to discuss whether Jody Wilson-Raybould would be able to testify in front of the Justice Committee to budget day so that nobody would talk about, uh, I don't like the... B- yeah, that, that's probably true, but they didn't write the budget with SNC Lavalin in mind. The budget's hard. I don't want to talk about this. We're talking about the fucking budget, Jen. Why are we doing that? That was more than a week ago now. (laughs) Jen, I I know you're skeptical, but this part of this conversation you might actually sort of enjoy. I'm super skeptical, yes. That's fair. There's one part of the budget coverage that I think always gets lost because it happens in every budget and it's kind of it's kind of small, but it's one thing I think is super important. Now, if you didn't follow it, budget 2019 commits about $23 billion in new spending above and beyond the spending that the liberal tax and spend party has already committed in previous budgets. That means that we're going to go down into several more years of deficit spending even though the liberals promised they were going to totally wipe out their deficit in the first mandate. Yeah, well, that was a fucking lie. Who could have figured, right, Jen? Nobody ever thought it was the truth, though, so let's let's get over it. Now, I would, I would defend the liberals a little bit. The overall deficit is pretty small compared to our GDP, but... Yeah, that, that's, li- that's the liberal talking point, sure. That is the liberal talking point. My concern with this is that it's still running... a kind of hefty deficit in a time when things are really good, which is the classic argument against counter-cyclical spending. Like, the problem is that it's fine to throw money into the economy when times are bad to try and bring things out. 
But if you keep on throwing money into the economy when times are good, all you wind up doing is just dragging yourself deeper and deeper into deficit and debt. Right. And you run the very strong chance that we're going to wind up in an inflationary period that where they are going to have to raise interest rates for and fuck over businesses everywhere. And you know, basically, it's just a vicious cycle of deficit spending that causes inflation into heavy borrowing costs, recession, and then more deficit spending. And it's, it's, it's absolutely snaking its own tail. It's how you know, countries go bankrupt and how Canada will eventually become Greece. All that said, yes, the deficits are relatively small. You know, we're looking at about 16, 17, 18 billion dollars over the next couple of years, eventually going down uh, into the single digits, they hope, if they don't keep spending, in the early 2020s. But the one thing I think that gets lost in this is the fact that the more deficits we accumulate, the more money we have to spend to finance that debt. And it's a number that I think should be mentioned every time we cover a budget because it's a big deal. As of right now, we spend about 7% of our annual budget on financing our debt. Oh, now, now you've got my attention. Hey, I, I knew I would. We're going to talk about deficit servicing. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, that's sexy. Welcome to the dark side, Justin. Welcome to the conservative side. Like I said, 7% of our budget right now goes towards just paying our debt because it's not fucking free. That number is going to go up to 8% by the next couple of years, thanks to some more of this deficit spending. The more money we heap on this debt, even if debt is cheaper than normal, is going to cost us more money to actually continue to pay down. That's not good. That's 8% of our budget that could go to many other things. I like the idea of spending a little more now so that our debt isn't as big, so we're not giving money to, you know, large banks, including banks of foreign countries, central banks of foreign countries, so that we can spend more money here domestically or abroad on development spending, you name it. It bugs me that we don't focus on that number enough, and it bugs me that we try to wave off small deficits as though, oh, it's just spent a little bit of here and there that we'll pay off later. No, it costs us money. It's not just $16 billion now, because in the long run, that ends up being 18 or 19 or $20 billion because of the long-term debt servicing costs of it, and that sucks. Well, it's also potentially much more because of compound interest. Welcome to neoliberalism, Justin. We had the cookies, <laughs> the good cookies. <laughs> Actually, that's a lie. We took all the cookies away. There's no more cookies. There's They're no not, more cookies. There's no such thing as a free cookie. But of course, the budget is more than just a single figure. There's you know a couple of new initiatives in this budget. Overall, it's a it's a pretty meek budget. I you know some people try to accuse the Trudeau Liberals of stuffing things in there to trick people and to buy them off to, into not being angry about SNC Lavalin. If anything, my conspiracy theory is they did the opposite. They actually pulled some stuff out of here and to save it for the summer when people wouldn't be so pissed off about this and the media wouldn't be focused on SNC Lavalin because. If you didn't notice, nobody covered the budget. There was no sustained long-term coverage of the budget. It basically dropped and was forgotten within 24 hours. So the things that are in here are, are relatively minor. You can kind of break it down to a couple of big things. One of them is some new money for uh, skills retraining programs, which is now starting to feel like something we announce in every single budget. It was a big kick by the Harper government in their last couple of years of their mandate. It's been something that the liberal government has focused heavily on it's all under the guise of saying we're trying to transition people away from resource intensive jobs into the jobs of the future. But I'm not totally convinced that this money is actually being well spent. It's starting to feel like, you know, tropes that get invoked in every single budget, like family reunification and credentials matching used to be the, you know, the old trope of the Harper government. Every single budget, there was money for both of those things. And every single year, it felt like the, the problem was not improved at all. And they're really... The needle didn't move on any of those issues. So skills training, you know, we're talking, you know, new tax credits, new programs. I'm far from convinced there's anything that, that's actually going to move the needle.
know, uh, in one case, the new tax credit for skills training amounts to 250 bucks a year to a lifetime maximum, because it's cumulative, of $5,000, which, you know, is in the grand scheme of the problem we're facing in terms of a transitioning economy. A pittance. There's a new EI program. Essentially, what that amounts to is a boutique tax credit. And the big criticism exactly, of boutique which is tax, the last thing we need. Yeah, more the, of. the big criticism of boutique tax credits is that essentially you're just paying people to do stuff they would do anyway. You're not actually. Yeah. It's not out of money to incentivize a change of behavior, right? And almost unfailingly with tax credits, the highest uptake is amongst people who already make a bunch of money who don't need the tax credit because people who make less tend to have shittier accountants or aren't as up to date on what the most recent tax credit from the budget is. They are less likely to take advantage of it. So I think yet again, we've created a program just to give rich people a break on their tax bill. And here's the other piece that I want to talk about really, really briefly, but the federal government's also creating a new EI class to let people take their employment insurance benefits as they go off and try to learn a new skill or get a new credential. It's only for a handful of weeks. And I, again, it's one of those things where the Trudeau government seems to be fetishizing using EI to fix every problem, and it's going to end up bankrupting the whole system. And I'm not convinced it's a useful pot of money to be dispatching because I, I don't think it's going to fundamentally address the problem of our entire economy shifting away from resource extractive jobs to new high-tech jobs. I don't know that this is going to be the thing that will convince the oil workers to go learn how to code. I, I just don't see it. At the end of the day, it's how does the government compete with the overall economy, right? Like people go where the jobs are, period. They don't go where they're going to right. get a tax credit or even a couple of weeks of extended EI coverage, right? They go where they're going to make money. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you want to talk about the federal government getting into the business where it has no business getting into, how about those first-time homebuyers, Jen? Holy shit, this is probably one of the shittiest, stupidest policies I've ever seen in a federal budget, and I'm not even kidding. I'm, I'm actively angry about this one. Yeah, so if you weren't following, the federal government did a couple of things that were designed to help people get into their first home, which is the happy days trope that we've all come to know and love. One of the programs would allow people to take out more from their RRSP to make a down payment on their home. Which is, which oh, is, which is criminal. Basically fucking criminal. Yeah, the federal government is here endorsing people raiding their retirement funds to go buy themselves a home, totally predicated on this notion that the best thing you can do for your retirement is buy property, which we saw from the 2008 financial collapse. And what we've seen from the emergence of a bubble in Canada is probably not the most reliable idea. And I think it's fundamentally terrifying. It's almost certain to be a terrible idea because in the event of a housing bubble crash or even a moderate correction, you are considerably more likely to lose money on your home now at this point than you are to make it, particularly if you're entering the market, particularly if you're at the bottom of this particular pyramid scheme. Yeah. And now when you're fucked and your home is worth significantly less than you planned on and you have no money in your RRSP for retirement, you're going to be in a really terrible spot. And so the other big piece of this is that the federal government wants the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, or the CMHC, to get into the business of shared equity mortgages. So instead of you putting down your $25,000 down payment on a house and then you know getting a mortgage that you pay monthly, um, the CMHC would get in the business of, say, matching your $25,000 or putting in some set amount of money, basically reducing your monthly mortgage payments. In return, the CMHC would get part of the equity in your home. You would pay them out when you sell your home if you sell their home or if you die in your home they'll, they'll just take part of your stuff let's get into just how bad a deal this actually is if you are not a baby boomer because i think this really needs to be broken down firstly for those of you who have not bought a home and are not familiar with cmhc this is how it, the system actually works this is how this scam actually works if you go into 
any basically any market in the country where you cannot afford to put down a 20% down payment on a home. You have to have your mortgage insured by the CMHC. What that actually means is you have to pay more money to a government entity backstopped by taxpayers to insure not you against the prospect of default. No, no, no. The insurance is to insure the private banks so that if you wind up not being able to pay your mortgage and you go into default and you lose your house, you lose everything. But the banks wind up getting a big thwack of cash from the CMHC, which is ultimately assured by the taxpayer so that they don't have to risk a goddamn thing on you. That is actually what's artificially ballooning housing properties because the banks can afford to lend us more and more and more money knowing that essentially they're having to swallow none of the risk of this housing bubble that cheap mortgages have inflated. And then with the shared equity, the reason why this is a double scam is that now you, the high risk borrowee of that cash, are no longer getting the benefit or getting the full benefit of the equity you're actually trying to earn into your property, which is almost certainly not going to go up in value like it has over the last 15 years. No, no, no. Now you've got to pay out the CMHC because you couldn't get into a housing market that's overinflated due to government properties. And the whole reason why this is happening, by the way, and the whole reason why the government is so keen to get millennials into their first homes is not actually to help millennials. No, the reason why they want millennials into their first homes is because, as I said, this is a pyramid scheme and pyramid schemes need to eat more vulnerable people at the bottom in order to ensure the continued wealth of the people at the top. And right now, the people at the top of that pyramid scheme are our parents. It's the baby boomers. They don't want to risk collapsing the housing market because so many of our parents and baby boomers have a shit ton of their own retirement equity caught up in the value of their properties. And if the housing prices actually go down, then the people who get nailed are our parents. So they're they're going to yeah. create all these little like like workarounds and accounting scams to get people our age further into debt so that our parents get to cash out in 10 years. Yeah. And in so doing, they're exacerbating the exact problem that they claim to be trying to fix. I mean, housing unaffordability in this country is getting absolutely wild. It's one of the main issues for the majority of the country, especially youth. And the exact thing that's going to make that problem worse is boosting the liquidity that goes into the market and basically creating an increased demand and expanding the pool of people who are not only able but looking to buy homes because that is only going to drive up prices, especially as housing stock is just not keeping pace. We're also seeing a problem where too much of the housing stock is aimed at the middle to high end of the market. If you're giving people more money to make bigger down payments, they're going to go to more expensive homes. I think this is exactly a huge part of the problem. What we need right now is more affordable and middle rung housing. You're encouraging people to probably get into houses that they can't afford. And in so doing, you're worsening the affordability issue from the very get go. What we need to be doing is increasing the supply of housing in this country. And the federal government is doing some to that respect. They have a big affordable housing program. I use the word big somewhat in scare quotes. It's wildly inadequate to what's actually necessary. This budget commits a little bit of money to getting the CMHC to partner and provide loans to developers who want to build rental units. But fundamentally, it's it's just a question of proportions. There's just so much more resources and attention being paid to getting people to buying their first home that they probably can't afford or that they don't need in the first place or you know, encouraging people to get into houses that they're just going to flip and resell anyway, instead of getting people uh, into rental units, which are, are long term much more sustainable and will ultimately ultimately uh, make the whole housing market basically more healthy. It will get people off the streets and into homes. There's a couple things that just need to shift. One, we need to create a cultural shift where it actually becomes acceptable for people to rent. 
and just home ownership being an option, but not necessarily the best option for most people. People get it through their heads that when they're adults in this country that they have to own their homes. That's actually not normal for most of the Western world. It's perfectly acceptable to rent. And in fact, for a lot of people, it makes way more sense financially to rent than it does to own a home. Homes are giant money pits. And secondly, the other thing is that if the government wants to really affect housing prices, they have to be willing to nail boomers. And they have to be willing to make the policy changes, the low-hanging fruit policy changes that are actually going to bring prices down, clamping down on foreign property ownership, clamping down on speculation, and also changing Building changing homes. stress tests and mortgage rules so that ensuring that people who are actually buying houses really can't afford them. And that's that's where no government actually wants to do because, again, the people they want to protect are their voters. Yeah. And building homes and building high density buildings um, that maybe the federal government owns. That's not such a terrible thing. Oh, I think that that's potentially a terrible idea. But let's hold that off for another conversation. There's one last thing I want to talk about in the budget because I think it is is the most interesting thing that almost nobody paid attention to. And I think will ultimately be basically the foundation of the Liberal Party's re-election platform in October. It's tucked in there, but basically it's a promise that the federal government is going to make the stock option tax regime fairer and more equitable for Canadians. And I'm sure for the middle class and all those hoping to attain it. Uh, But basically, the federal government is raising the idea that they're going to ensure that the tax rate for your stock options for, you know, the stock options that you as the rich ass CEO got paid will basically be taxed the same as your cash income. That is something that is wildly long overdue. It has been a loophole that has been abused aggressively by the richest people in this country to get taxed at about half the rate as the top income tax bracket and to basically funnel their money out of the tax system and into their own pockets through stake in their company. The language in this budget is that the final version of this plan will be unveiled this summer. And there is some language in there that they're going to make sure that it doesn't ding, um, you know, startup CEOs or people working, um, you know, in, in entrepreneurial ventures. But this is a really good thing. It's something that people have been calling for for a long time. The federal government seems to be trying to replicate this sort of magic it managed to create in 2015 around talking about taxing the 1%. Um, and I think it's a good thing. It's high time that, you know, we um, eat the rich. Yeah, you know, it's probably a bad thing. But just for the purposes of ending this god awful conversation about the budget, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> Oppo is brought to you in part by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Endy offers you a 100-night trial with free returns so you can test your mattress in the comfort of your home instead of a big box showroom floor. The return process during the 100-night trial is super simple. If you don't absolutely love it, they will come and pick it up for you and give you a full refund, no questions asked. They won't ask about anything. They won't even ask you why that guy in the panda costume's there. It's totally no questions asked. When mattresses are returned, and it doesn't happen all that often, Endy works with local charities and furniture banks to donate the new and gently used mattresses to Canadians in need. They also don't ask any questions. The Canadians in need don't ask any questions because they need a mattress, and they're getting one, so they don't have any questions for you. They ship to every Canadian province, including the secret one, and it's in a box the size of a hockey bag. Endy is also giving customers the opportunity to touch, feel, and try the mattresses that Canadians are falling in love with in select showroom partner locations across the country. And there's no questions asked there either. You can touch, feel, no questions asked. For $50 off any Endy mattress, go to endy.ca slash oppo and enter the promo code oppo. That's endy.ca slash oppo, promo code OPPO. Listeners, those of you who have been listening to Oppo will know that I really like harping on the SNC scandal because I've been consistently so correct on it. Yeah. So I just want to make sure that we're not letting that issue drop. 
I want to make sure you're all up to date on just how wrong Justin Ling was in the last two weeks. Uh, we, we've actually decided that we're going to uh, transition uh, these SNC uh, Lavalin check-ins to a format where we just uh, sing all the updates via We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. So, we uh, didn't start the fire. <laughs> Paul Wells got a big scoop from Jane Philpott. We didn't start the fire. Okay, I'm going to do this now. Yep. We're happening this. This is really good. Yeah. Yep. yep. This is really good, Jen. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. Okay. So <laughs> this over the last two weeks, the Justice Committee decided, nah, we're just we're just not gonna continue to examine this and more or less shut down the probe into the SNC affair. That was kind of controversial, and the government got accused not entirely wrongly of a cover-up. And it also gave the conservatives all kinds of ammunition that allowed them to storm into parliament, causing a big fuss on budget day, you know, drowning out Bill Morneau, the finance minister, and generally being an example of the best or worst of Westminster Parliamentary Theatre, depending on how you want to look at it. I'm a big fan of the filibuster. I thought this one was, eh, just okay. And of course, the conservatives were demanding the federal government let Jody Wilson-Raybould speak. There has been a hot debate about whether or not she actually has the authority to go to speak on her own, whether or not she actually needs the Justice Committee. One way or the other, she has sent them a letter. We're going to see the letter at some point soon. And there's also some suggestion that she just might get up and uh, start speaking her truth whenever she feels like it. Of course, people have highlighted the fact that she has parliamentary immunity. If she chooses to make use of it, she can get up in the House and, and, and say kind of whatever she feels like. Solicitor-client privilege and cabinet confidence potentially be damned. This is one of the really delightful little wonk debates. The reason why I think it's a really stupid wonk debate is that even if she does have parliamentary privilege, there's really no practical way of her expressing that parliamentary privilege. The only way that she could go out and speak her truth uh, and be protected by parliamentary privilege is if she did it under a standing order that would only give her about 60 seconds to speak. That's not really a practical solution. Every other way that she could stand up in parliament basically either has to be approved by the speaker or has to be approved by the liberal majority, and we all know there's no way hell that's going to happen. Yeah, the easiest way for her to do that would be to speak through an SO31, which is the standing order you refer to, which happens every day in the House of Commons, but is normally uh, reserved for MPs uh, celebrating a tortoise in their riding who just turned 100. Which is pretty impressive, let's also say. I love an old tortoise. So I'm sure if you've been following over the last 24 hours, you saw a really curious story that came via some anonymous sources, and by anonymous sources, I mean the PMO, to both the Canadian press and CTV about some discussions that happened around the table where the Prime Minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould and some others uh, were discussing a new Supreme Court justice. And I, I'm actually fascinated by this story, Jen. Firstly, I would point out that Jody Wilson-Raybould is bound by cabinet confidence, but apparently anonymous members of the prime minister's office aren't. I think that's a little bullshit. Secondly, to me, the story just reads as someone trying to make Jody Wilson-Raybould look like some kind of evil, awful social conservative because she wanted to appoint a homophobic judge. And I think that that is a really unsophisticated, incorrect way of viewing what is actually a much more interesting and nuanced conversation between judges who actually have genuinely different beliefs about how the charter should be applied in law. I am more fascinated that Jody Wilson-Raybould wants someone like Glenn Joal on the court and was fighting so vigorously. She wrote a 60-page memo recommending that he uh, be appointed not only to the top court, but as the chief justice, because, of course, Beverly McLaughlin was retiring. It kind of suggests that Jody Wilson-Raybould is an originalist, which is really I, neat. I don't think she is. What I would actually be really curious to know is whether or not she believes that there should be at least one originalist on the court. Hmm. That is a really cool take. And I think actually it's a pretty good one. I think that's actually totally reasonable. But 
but not even Stephen Harper was willing to go that no, far to no, try to man. appoint. Because they knew that the, the originalist side is usually espoused by conservatives. Now, this is actually a really neat debate. There's a kind of mirror between what's happening in the Canadian Supreme Court and what has happened previously in the American Supreme Court. And to be honest with you, I actually am thinking we should just do a show on this and bring in some really cool legal experts and academic experts to chat about it. Because Okay, well, let's let the listeners decide. Oh, shit. No, don't ask them this. Let's just, no, we're going to we're gonna make them listen to it. Are you kidding me? We'll just do an episode on the Constitution. Yeah, we'll just, we're going to force you to do it, listen to what we want you to listen to. And that's just, you'll, you're going to like it. <laughs> and you're going to like it, listeners. And gonna gonna like sit it. down and shut up. <laughs> That's it for Oppo. We'll be back in two weeks. Comment starts again next Tuesday. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast to let us know what you think. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Our theme music is by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is originalist. Oh, that's nice. Now, normally we play you out with a dumb clip, but we don't have any this week because we actually have some sad news. Now, you may have seen a Twitter poll done by us recently asking who your preferred host of the show is, whether it's me, Jen, or, of course, Meatcat. Now, Meatcat won in a clear landslide, and it's with a heavy heart I have to tell you that this week uh, it will be Meatcat's last show. So, uh, everyone, please help us wish uh, Meatcat all the best as he uh, flies away on his um, skateboard. We murdered Meatcat. We put him in a burlap sack and drowned him in the Ontario Lake. No, we drowned him in Lake Ontario. That's right, that's right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.